Welcome to episode 45 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast, the one strategically placed after my voice had come back. Look, I got so busy with life that I forgot to note this podcast's anniversary, which passed unmarked and uncelebrated 17 days ago. I guess in the long run, I'll pay for that. Had I remembered, I could have got a small gift and organized a nice dinner out. But having forgotten, I'm now on the hook for at least a spa day and probably a shopping expedition, as well as, of course, being reminded each and every time I publish a new episode about that time I forgot about the anniversary until 17 whole days had passed. When I was putting on my headphones at the start of this session, I could absolutely swear that I heard the podcast tell me in hushed tones that I never seem to forget which NFL games are on which day. Which is, of course, true. So I can only apologize and say that if it's any consolation, I have greatly enjoyed the year that the podcast and I have spent together, and I hope for many more in the future. A lot of people have written to me since last episode and asked for an account of the NFL game I took my dad to in London, and you're in luck. I wrote that trip up for the first issue of the new monthly National Review magazine. And you can find that online if you have a subscription. I'll put the link in the show notes of this episode. Long story short, it was terrific. My dad loved the game and the sport. And the Jaguars won, beating the Bills 25-20. to Now, not everyone knows this, but if you read between the lines in the Federalist Papers, you'll find James Madison and Alexander Hamilton explaining that while they have many hopes for the new country and its legal system, prime among them is that the Jaguars will go on a bunch of unbeaten runs. So there it is. That victory was both desirable and constitutional. My guest today is Yasha Monk, who is here to talk to me about his new book, The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time, which, broadly speaking, is about the rise of what we might call identity politics or wokeness. Yasha is a professor of the practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University, He's the founder of the digital magazine Persuasion, and he's the host of the podcast The Good Fight. And today he's my guest.
Yasha Monk, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, so this book, The Identity Trap, is about what we might loosely call identity politics, and it contains three sections overall. In the first one, you describe what you call the intellectual history of the identity synthesis. In other words, you address where the idea came from. You then talk about, quote, the political, sociological, and technological reasons that led this ideology to escape campus and conquer the mainstream. In other words, you explain why it caught on. And then you argue, and this is why it's a trap, I imagine, that, quote, the ways in which these ideas have been applied to topics from free speech to cultural appropriation are likely to prove counterproductive, and you recommend a return to liberal universalism, which, although you and I, I imagine, disagree on a bunch of political issues, I think describes both of our worldviews at their core. So let's start with the first of those questions. For those who aren't familiar with all of this history that you lay out, where did the idea that we now call identity politics or wokeness, if we're being critical, come from? Before it escaped the campus, how did it get there? Yeah, um, so, you know, I'm... Uh trained as an intellectual historian. That's what I did as an undergrad and for a lot of my PhD. And I approached this question with an open mind when I started to write this book. I knew a lot of claims uh, by people who say that, you know, this new set of ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation that's come to have such a profound influence on our culture and politics over the course of the last years, uh, they call this a form of cultural Marxism. So what they mean by that is that you take the sort of traditional precepts of Marxism, which are, of course, based mostly on economic categories like social class, you take those categories out, you stuff in these identity categories, and you basically get what you have today. I think when you do that, you can't actually explain the main themes, the main ideas that progressive activists talk about today. And as I started to read the intellectual history of tracing people back to the origin of where these ideas come from, I, I really realized that this is the, the wrong genealogy. So as you're saying, in the first part of the book, I try to uh, tell that really interesting story. Now, where the story starts, I think, is with Michel Foucault in a post-war Paris in the 1950s and 1960s. Foucault is a Marxist at one point. He joins the Communist Party of France that is basically listening to Moscow and doing whatever they tell them. But he comes to really bristle against it. He particularly bristles against uh, the conspiracy theory that Jewish doctors had killed Stalin, which the French Communist Party endorses in 53. And he leaves that party. And from then on, he really is an enemy of Marxists of his day, including luminaries like Jean-Paul Sartre, who really uh, rule the roost in Paris. And instead, Foucault says, we need to reject what he calls the grand narratives of his time, the big structuring theories that try to make sense of the nature of the world and the kind of ideals that we should embrace. And one of those grand narratives he rejects is Marxism, very explicitly. He becomes an, you know, people like Sartre come to think of him as an enemy. The other one that he rejects is the one that you and I share, which is a form of philosophical liberalism that thinks that the basic principles of liberal democracies or constitutional republics can help to orient us in the world. 
To that leads him to a general skepticism towards claims about objective truth and universal values that becomes one of the first core themes of the identity synthesis. The next thing that Foucault does is to challenge how we usually think about political power. Now, normally when we think about power, we might think about something that's top-down, right? There's laws, and they're applied for bureaucrats and the state and cops, and that's how they sort of travel down. Foucault says, no, actually, the things that really exercise power in society are these political discourses, the way we speak to each other, the way we frame the world, the kind of basic notions and categories we use to make sense of the world, including basic identity categories. Those are the things that really exercise power. And so, therefore, when you're trying to fight against power, that's what you should focus on. Foucault himself becomes sort of strangely nihilistic, a little bit apolitical as a result. He thinks we can fight against one form of discourse, and that might give us a moment of freedom, but then the discourse reconstitutes itself and we're just as unfree afterwards. So there's a deep skepticism towards the possibility of political progress here. You have another set of terms in the book that ought to be defined. One is strategic essentialism, and another is safetyism. What are those? Yeah, so um, the next step really is that a set of different thinkers starts to build on Foucault. They like the way in which he gives a radical critique of prevailing ideas. Like Foucault, they want to reject the principles of liberal universalism. They are real skeptics about the existence of forms of objective truth. But they bristle at how apolitical Foucault ends up being. They want to use some of his insights uh, in order to do political battle. And the first step here is from Edward Said, a Palestinian-American uh, writer who says the, the West's idea about the East, what he calls Orientalism, really helped to justify and perpetuate colonial rule. And so in order to overcome that, we're going to apply those Foucaultian tools of discourse analysis. But we're going to take it one step further. The point is not just to recognize these things, but to invert them, to give people who have historically been colonized the power to fight back and to actually become more powerful. And that becomes another key theme of these progressive movements today, the politicized use of discourse analysis, so that today what it is to do feminist politics, for example, maybe to fight for certain kinds of laws, but a lot of it is to praise or criticize or engage with a Barbie movie, to fight for cultural hegemony over various kind of ideas and debates and how to use concepts and how to talk about the world. And the other step here is, is, is Gayatri Spivert, who, as you say, starts to talk about strategic essentialism, which is really one of the key terms that, to me, helped to explain a lot of where we're at today. What, what Spivak is saying is that the kind of critique of stable uh, identity forms and concepts that people like Foucault have, they're really right about that. At a philosophical level, we should be skeptical about identity. But somebody needs to speak for the subaltern around the world, for the people, that's her term, subaltern, for the people who are the most oppressed around the world. They can't speak for themselves. And so in order to speak for them, we have to operate with certain kinds of identity categories. And so for strategic purposes, we'll pretend that these critiques of essentialism are not true. We'll basically pretend 
that we can really talk about groups and identities in these straightforward terms. And that, again, becomes this really key phrase in our contemporary politics. When you go to an orientation at an elite college in the United States today, some administrator is going to greet you and they'll say something like, race is a social construct, right? It's fake, no biological basis to it. That's something that I broadly agree with. But then they'll go on to say, but you should think of yourself, as many educators have said, a kind of racial being, that you should embrace race, that the fundamental thing that structures society today and the fundamental thing about your identity is that you're black or Latino or Asian American or a member of some other racial category. So again, we see how these terms like strategic essentialism that uh, arise in, in, in conversation with in response to postmodernism really end up influencing these activist spaces today. Okay, so this is all quite high-minded. This is the sort of thing that at a certain point in American history, in Western history, would have been the preserve of a college campus, would have been in lectures and academic textbooks, and maybe a few administrators who might have talked in this way. But what you're describing here is now in my view, unpleasantly familiar to all manner of people, many of whom did not go to college and don't spend their days thinking about the intellectual history of identity politics. So how did that happen? And why did it happen so fast? You have this phrase, short march through the institutions. Why? Yeah, let me very quickly bring the story to its end with critical race theory, which you know, nowadays is there's this weird debate about it where some people attack anything that includes, for example, teaching about the history of slavery in schools as critical race theory. And then in response, a lot of the left says, well, of course, we should all embrace critical race theory. That's just being critical about the role that race plays in society. How could anybody be against that? When you actually go back to read the founding figures of critical race theory, of CRT, you start to realize that they very explicitly set themselves up in opposition to some of the key ideas of the civil rights movement. Derek Bell, perhaps the most influential figure within the movement, uh, marked civil rights songs like We Shall Overcome for what he perceived as its parties. He, he vowed that we need to overcome what he calls the quote-unquote defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. And so what they're saying, or something like Bell is saying, is that we need to reject universalist institutions reject in some ways even the ideal of integration. Bell himself did heroic work working for the NAACP, desegregating public schools and businesses and other institutions throughout the American South in the 1960s, but then comes to agree with the claims of segregationist senators that civil rights lawyers basically went working on behalf of their clients they were trying to impose their ideology. And that often in the interest of clients would have required schools that are separate but truly equal. That becomes a founding stone of a rejection of universal public policy, of the idea that how you're treated should often, uh, in many circumstances, increasingly depend on the kind of racial or other identity group of which you are a part. And then finally, you have the idea of intersectionality rooted in Kimberly Crenshaw, she presents it in a more subtle way, but then basically comes to mean that if I'm at one intersection of identities and you're at a different intersection of identities, I'm not going to be able to understand you. There's going to be this limit to our mutual communication. So instead of actually talking to each other, listening to each other's stories, I should 
defer judgment to a more oppressed group. So we take those five or six ideas, the, the rejection of universal truth in Foucault, the politicized form of discourse analysis in Said, the embrace of strategic essentialism in Spivak, the um, uh, rejection of universalism and embrace of particularism in uh, Bell and uh, this broader interpretation of intersectionality that flows from Crenshaw. And I think you get a lot of these movements today. But then the question becomes what you just asked, which is, well, hang on a second. Great. So we've explained why students are taught what they're taught in departments of comparative literature or perhaps gender studies by 2010. How on earth can that become truly influential? And in fact, Crenshaw herself writes an article in 2010, on the 20th anniversary of critical race theory, saying, look, we've had this amazing success in universities, and we have a lot of influence now, that's all lovely, but you know what, we have no influence on the general public, and that's not about to change. And then it does change. So how, how is that? Why is that? I think there's a number of reasons here. The first is, as you're saying, the, the short march for the institutions. So by 2010, there's a lot of the humanities and the social sciences that are teaching these ideas. A huge number of administrators at American universities have bought those ideas. Administrators actually turn out to be much more far left than faculty members and much less tolerant of ideas like free speech than faculty members. And because they've grown in number and in influence on campus, they have a huge impact on campus culture. And so as students who uh, have been raised with these ideas start to go into nonprofits, into progressive campaign organizations, but also into tech companies like Google, also into uh, professional firms in, in consulting and the law, they really help to remake the norms of those ideas. The idea of the long march through the institutions comes from these 1960s, 1970s German student revolutionaries, and it was meant to be a deliberate tactic, you know, quit violent political activism and join these institutions to slowly subvert them. This was not a deliberate act like that. These students, uh, uh, in the great majority, weren't going to Google in order to carry out political revolutions. They wanted a nice paycheck and have impact on the world, but they took their views with them. And especially in an environment uh, which hired predominantly from elite universities, have a lot of young staff and claim for themselves not just to be making money, but to be doing good for the world, these companies found it very hard to resist these kinds of claims. So that's one of the key steps in the popularization of these ideas. Let me ask this, because this has long interested me. The people you're talking about who go to Google, they go to other institutions, and they bring with them these ideas that they got in college – did they get those ideas because those ideas were attractive or did they get those ideas because those ideas were imposed upon them or did they get those ideas because peer pressure made them the norm? Because it wasn't always that way. I mean, you wouldn't have heard those ideas in a way that was mainstream in, say, 1950. How did that become the, if not the normal, but a widespread thing that people who came out of college and then went to work for Google brought with them? I think it's a great question because one of the objections that college professors rightly make to some less subtle versions of the account I've given is, 
are you kidding me? I can barely get my students to do the reading. How do you think I have this tremendous power to indoctrinate them? Right. I think it's true that any one professor does not have the power to uh, pressure their students into changing their views. What we, what we sometimes have the power to do is to, uh, and some of my students complain about that relative to other faculty members, is to basically make it clear to them that they have to parrot your views to get an A, and then they'll dutifully parrot your views for your paper, and perhaps you thought you've had an influence, but in the next class they'll say whatever else they need to to get an A, right? But I would say a number of things here. The first is that for many of the students I teach now who are smart and inquisitive people who want genuinely to think about these topics, who are very grateful to be given an environment where they can debate these ideas. And I, in the classroom, don't try to indoctrinate. I try to give them the best version of these ideas, which I'm critical, and the best version of the criticisms of them. And I tell them on the first day of class, I want you to change your mind about something. I don't care in which direction. And I'd much rather you make a smart argument I disagree with than a dumb argument I agree with. But the ideas that they've encountered all through their lives at this point are just deeply steeped in the identity synthesis. I had a discussion with some students about free speech recently, and I made the very basic point that part of the problem with free speech is that the good guys may not always be the ones deciding what can be said and what cannot be said. And in fact, right. the marginalized, the weakest in society, nearly by definition, are not going to be the ones to be in positions of power to decide what can be said and what can't be said. This very smart, thoughtful student was just astonished by this point because she'd never heard this point, right? Um, so I do think that there's something here where these ideas just become so dominant in many schools and then in many universities that it's sort of a water that, that these young fish are swimming in. I will say something else as well, which is that I thought really hard about the title of my book. And I came up with the idea of the identity trap because this is a new ideology that is about identity, but, because the, but also because the metaphor of a trap, I think, expresses the right idea. How do you end up in a trap? Well, usually there's a lure. There's something that draws you in, right? Uh, and here the lure is, uh, first of all, the claim to be really clear-eyed about the injustices that persist in our society. And of course, there are injustices that persist in our society. And then the claim that you know, rather than these reformists who would change here and there little things, we are going to remake these institutions from scratch. We're going to rip up the constitutions, rip up the institutions, and we are the most uncompromising, the most passionate people actually fighting for justice. That is attractive to young people. I'm no longer quite a young person. That idea is attractive to me as well. So, so yes, I think it is all of the above. It is that these ideas... Um, much more prevalent on campus than the way. It is that often other kinds of traditions aren't really being taught anymore. But a lot of it is that they exude this kind of lure, that they are attractive by making these big promises. And that, by the way, is why to argue effectively against these ideas is not enough to just say, oh, aren't these young people a little bit radical? Don't they go a little bit far? That invites the obvious rejoinder of how can it be going too far? You mean I'm going too far in fighting racism? I'm going too far in fighting against discrimination? We should go all out against those things. And I agree with that, right? No, the problem is that these ideologies are actually taking us in the wrong direction. They're actually leading us astray from the kind of society in which we should want to live. I wonder how popular they are, in your view, in the general 
populations. So the point you made about speech there is one that I agree with completely and I make all the time. And I often find people who are well-meaning who've never heard it as well. You say, look, you seem to think that marginalized people need protecting from hate speech, but that those marginalized people are going to be in charge of regulating and policing speech. That doesn't make any sense. I think it's a strong argument. I think it's historically sound. But the counter-argument to that position that I just outlined, but also as a criticism of this identity politics model, is that in this case, it does seem to me that a worldview that is held by a minority and that came out of elite institutions does actually have an enormous effect on everyone else. I mean, most people don't go to college. Most people don't do humanities in colleges. Most people don't work at Google. They don't work in HR departments. They don't have the power to put people through diversity training. They don't work in the media and have the authority to set narratives. Is this a popular ideology or is this top-down? Am I wrong here? I don't see it as being something that's popular in the world. And I ask this distinct from your third section, which is that it's counterproductive. I'm just trying to set this in its right context as to whether or not we're talking here about something that, although it has gone through the institutions, is still fringe among the democratic populace. Yes, no, I agree with that. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure sort of where the potential disagreement comes from. So, so put it about this free speech point. Yes, it is. You know, I think there is a small group of ideologically motivated people who is able to impose their views within a lot of progressive contexts and within a lot of institutions that are facially neutral, but effectively left-leaning, like universities. I think those people are, by definition, quite privileged, because as we know from the Hidden Tribes study uh, by Moore and Common, for example, the people who you might count as progressive activists, disproportionately affluent, uh, disproportionately highly educated, and actually disproportionately white, as it happens. So they might claim to speak on behalf of these oppressed identity groups and to exercise some amount of real power, claiming that they're doing so on behalf of these minority groups. But the ideology that they expound is the ideology of a small, highly educated, rich elite in the United States. And often the true views within those groups are systematically different from that of our spokespeople. Um, you know, these are kind of the most obvious examples, but every Latino activist group talks about Latinx people, and 98% right. of Latinos say they don't want to be called Latinx. A lot of uh, the most visible African-American writers, like Ibram X. Kendi, have endorsed sentiments like abolishing the police. When you actually look at opinion polls of African-Americans, they do consider police violence a very serious problem, as do I. But they say, we want better police, not less police. We want to make sure that we have police that protects us in our neighborhoods, whom we can turn to when a crime has been committed against us. We just also want police accountability. That's a very different uh, view from that, you know, which many of the advocates of the identity synthesis now embrace. So, you know, this Hidden Tribe study, as I just mentioned, said that progressive activists are about 8% of the population. I think that's, that's broadly right. 
but those views are hugely overrepresented among the most influential class of Americans. And then there is a set of dynamics within those groups where even when at my university, I think the people who genuinely believe in this ideology and the minority, but but they don't feel any compunctions about speaking out, whereas many other people with my views are much more uh, circumspect about what they will say when. And so as a result, this set of ideas can have tremendous social influence without uh, having convinced all that many people in society as a whole. You write in the second section of the book, I'll quote, but over the past six decades, the left's thinking on identity has, for reasons that are in many ways understandable, undergone a profound change, end quote. I wonder why you think that the reasons there are understandable. It's 2023, so six decades ago was 1963. And there is an argument that over that period of time, those six decades, liberalism, with a small l, has worked. And one year after 1963, you get the 1964 Civil Rights Act, then you get the Voting Rights Act, then you get Supreme Court decisions, Loving v. Virginia, that banned prohibitions on interracial marriage. You see increases in the black middle class that continue through into the 1990s. Why understandable as a description of this rebellion against some of those liberal, universalist, neutral approaches? Great question. A couple of things. The first is just to distinguish between the interesting and sophisticated uh, thinkers with whom I engage in the first part of a book, who are people with whom I fundamentally disagree about very important sure. things, but who are serious scholars from, from whom I've learned, who I actually enjoyed reading in, in, in many cases. And then when it comes to... to 2010 and the following decade, these ideas are popularized and sometimes vulgarized in forms that I think are much, much less subtle and then also sometimes a lot less understandable. So the, the, the version of these ideas that you then see in best-selling authors like Robin DiAngelo or Ibram X. Kendi, I think, is much less worthy of, of, of taking seriously, frankly, than the thinkers uh, who they popularize and whom they sort of build. So why is it that this turn to identity is in some ways understandable? Look, I agree with you that the basic story of the last 60 or 70 years is one of tremendous progress on these issues. You mentioned Loving versus the state of Virginia. In the 1960s, 95% of Americans thought that interracial marriage was immoral. 95% of Americans. Today, it's less than 5%. If that isn't tremendous progress... I don't know what is. Part of this claim about the permanence of racism that was popularized by critical race theory is the refusal to see any amount of progress. And you see that in areas other than race as well. GLAD claims in various ways that America today is as homophobic as it was 30 or 40 years ago. Well, in the 1990s, Ellen DeGeneres had to leave her talk show because she publicly came out as lesbian. You're seriously going to tell me that we haven't made significant progress, progress we should celebrate on that count? No, that's 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 absurd. At the same time, I can see why some people feel that we've made progress, but it isn't enough, that there is still a lot of socioeconomic inequality, that in some American cities you continue to have neighborhoods of people who live in compounded disadvantage 
in part because of a long history of racial injustice in the United States. And so I understand that there can be a righteous anger at those injustices, which can sometimes blind well-intentioned, if wrong-headed people, into being unable or unwilling to see the progress we've made. So, you know, I think if we have a difference of opinion here, it's a difference in sort of how empathetic we want to be towards that position. It's not about whether that position is ultimately right. I think it's very clear that we have made significant progress. Understood. Understood. I want to ask about Tumblr. This is not the most important issue in the world, but you mentioned Tumblr in the book, and you have this line, what began on Tumblr did not stay on Tumblr. And you run through all of these ideas and memes and concepts that spread across Tumblr. And it just stood out to me because I listened to the Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling by the Free Press, and they had a whole section on that podcast about just how extraordinarily influential Tumblr was in popularizing ideas that were previously fringe. Do, do, do you agree? Is this, is this an understudied phenomenon in our, in our recent history? I, I think it is. And, and some people have studied it in smart ways. And that's probably both what I drew on and what this podcast drew on. But Tumblr did have this incredible role in popularizing these ideas about identity. And part of it is that it really was the first social media platform that allowed people to organize and rally around both existing and new forms of identity in an effective way. You know, if you went to high school before Tumblr, the kind of set of identities that you might come to inhabit as you, you know, made your own way into adulthood was really constrained by those that were already available in your social context. And that depended on the size of your school, right? So in order to have an identity, you have to have 10 people who share that identity. And if your school isn't that huge, you know, that means there's only going to be so and so many identities on offer. On a platform like Tumblr, you could self-tag around particular terms and you could have memes with new ideas, sometimes new identity labels that go viral. And in that way, suddenly you could find those 20 people you need to create the identity across the entire United States or across the entire English-speaking world. And so that's where new forms of sexual orientation, like demisexual, or new ways of understanding your gender, like Libra gender, ended up emerging because it was this incredibly fertile playground for these ideas. And then in the next step, you needed an ideology that holds together all of these kind of different tribes of identity. You need a sort of meta culture that, that allows interaction between them. And that becomes the set of ideas that your identity is the most fundamental thing about you. That to criticize some claim of yours is to question your identity and therefore perhaps to call into doubt your very right to exist. That when I offend you in some kind of way, even if it wasn't my intent to do so, I should be held liable for the consequences. All of that starts to emerge on Tumblr and then take its written form in platforms like Ford Catalog and later everydayfeminism.com and then finally starts to enter the mainstream around the mid-2010s. All right, so let's move on to why this is a bad idea. You say in the intro that different people will take different things from the book. They'll be interested in different sections of the book. I think the biggest question is whether or not this is good for the world, specifically 
the United States because I live here, but the world as well. You don't think that this identity politics worldview is good for the world and you wish to resist it. Why? Well, let me start with a story, perhaps. You know, I spoke to a woman called Kyla Posey, an African-American educator in the suburbs of Atlanta. She has two little kids who are in elementary school. And she asked uh, her principal, her school's principal, whether she was allowed to request a particular classroom teacher for her. And the principal said, sure, of course, no problem. We'll, we'll, uh, you know, we'll put your kids in the class you prefer. And so she requested a teacher. And then the principal started stalling and deflecting and, 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 and not really acceding to the demand. And so finally, Kyla Posey got a little angry and said, look, what's going on here? Why won't you let my kids go to the class that I chose for them? And the principal said, well, you know, that's not the black class. And now this sounds like a kind of old-fashioned story about racial segregation in the American South until you learn that the principal of the school was herself black and that she was deeply influenced by a new set of progressive ideas that a good pedagogy, a good education teaches people that they're racial beings, that it convinces them to embrace their race, that children cannot have a healthy development unless a large part of a social peer group comes from the same racial group. And that is what motivated the principal in trying to put Kalaposi's children into, quote-unquote, the black class, even though that is not what, what she herself wanted. There's a broader set of developments along those lines in education. In many of the most elite private schools around the country, teachers will come in in first grade, second grade, third grade, before kids have a lot of agency of themselves, and say, you're black, you go over there. You're Latino, you go over there. You're Asian-American, you go over there. And by the way, you're white, so you go over there. That comes from this idea of strategic essentialism, of trying to encourage people to be able to fight for a group. But you know, everything in history and social psychology teaches me that that's not how it's going to work out. If you encourage a bunch of white kids, as Bank Street on the Upper West Side of Manhattan now does, to quote-unquote embrace their whiteness, this is not going to turn them into anti-racist activists. It's going to turn them into racists, if anything else, and lead to these zero-sum forms of political battle. So politically, when I think about what norms, what ideals, what social practices do we need to sustain a deeply diverse democracy like the United States, to make sure that we can be compatriots who treat each other fairly and humanely, I think that many of these ideas are going to be phenomenally counterproductive. And by the way, as somebody who worries about authoritarian populists around the world, from people like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela and his successor Maduro, to people like Recep Erdogan in Turkey and Narendra Modi in India, and yes, Donald Trump in the United States, I don't think that this set of ideas is capable of standing up to them. I think a lot of the way in which these ideas became so predominant in progressive institutions is that it became taboo to criticize your own side after people felt understandably concerned when Donald Trump was elected in 2016. But I think conversely, a lot of the reason why Donald Trump may win in 2024 is because so many Americans are worried about the dominance of these ideas in mainstream institutions. One is the yin to the other's yang. I find both of them to be concerning, and so the best way to fight against them is to oppose both. What if it worked? If you poll Americans, you're absolutely right. They hate this. 
racism and racial discrimination and categorizing people based on their race is unpopular in America. This is a good thing. As you said, 97%, I think, of Americans are now fine with interracial marriage, a perfect inversion of where it was in the 50s and 60s. Affirmative action is unpopular, 70-80%. Even in California, the initiative to restore racial categories failed. I saw a poll last week about reparations in California that was two to one against. There is a a broad-based opposition to this sort of thinking that I find salutary. And yes, there are all sorts of practical utilitarian reasons why a universalist should oppose it and why people on the left should oppose it. One of which is that it might lead to electoral outcomes and political outcomes that they disdain. But what if it were popular? To what extent is your argument a practical argument? And to what extent is it a moral argument where you also believe, look, this is just wrong, we shouldn't live like this? No, it, it, is, it is a moral argument first and foremost. Okay. You know, let me give you an example about cultural appropriation. So in the third part of the book, I really think about the main applications of, of the popularized version of these ideas in our life today. I talk about our supposed inability to understand each other across these lines. I talk about the importance to build a culture of free speech. I critique these new pedagogical practices, which are called a form of progressive separatism. Uh, and I talk about uh, the adoption of forms of race-sensitive and identity-sensitive public policies, which I think are deeply counterproductive in many contexts as well. One of the things I talk about is cultural appropriation. And you know that term has become very popular and influential on the left, in part because uh, it builds on the intuition that there are some cases of what might be described as cultural appropriation that are, in fact, concerning. So in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, some white musicians uh, emulated or or outright took the songs of black musicians, had big careers with that, when black musicians weren't able to do that because of the discrimination they suffered. Now, obviously, that was an injustice, but we have a way of describing that injustice that is much more straightforward than to call it cultural appropriation. The injustice was the segregation that made it impossible for those black singers to perform uh, in a lot of the American South. It was the reluctance of record labels to sign black musicians. It was all of the very straightforward forms of racism discrimination that impeded them from having the careers they deserved. Why is this important? Because when you can explain what's wrong about a supposed case of cultural appropriation in simple, straightforward terms that doesn't invoke that concept, then there's something wrong with it. If not, it is not something we should reject. It's actually something we should celebrate. Throughout human history, cultural innovation nearly always came from the confluence of different cultures, from the way that one culture reacted to, incorporated, riffed on another culture. Uh, Virtually every aspect of the culture we have built today has influences from different parts of the world in ways that nearly sound trivial to say, right, from Roman script to Arabic numerals and so on and so forth. And so this is an area where there's really a fundamental question about the kind of society in which we should want to live. Do we want to live in a society where we have these five or six different 
diverse groups that live next to each other and where we really police the boundaries between them. We're really worried about them influencing each other. Or do we want to live in a society where they're able to cooperate and inspire each other and work together and create all kinds of new forms of culture and literature and businesses and and that is the world in which I want to live. That is a question of principle, not a question of expediency. Tell me what we replace this with. You said earlier you think that some of these ideas are genuinely attractive to people. They give them purpose. They give them the sense that they can start the world anew, that they can make faster and deeper progress on the problems that they care about, that the liberal universalist worldview is filled with magical thinking, but this is the truth and that they know it. If so, those ideas that are attractive enough to have got this far are going to need to be replaced by something that is equally or more attractive. So how do we get there? What's the next philosophy that beats this one? Well, so the first point is that it's a, uh, you know, a project in defending political moderation against forms of radicalism that backfire. Uh, that is never easy, but it works a lot of the time, right? At any one moment, there's been people who said, you know what, stuff your forms of uh, gradual progress that philosophical liberals like uh, to prefer, or conservatives uh, prefer, in certain respects, you know, we need to tear everything down and make the world anew. And when people succeeded with that, the outcome was uh, often really, really yeah. terrible. But it doesn't happen all the time. A lot of the time, even in moments and periods of social foment, the people who said, look, we'll take on board whatever is good in your ideas, but no, we're not going to remake those institutions. And we have actually been able to make progress. And so they're with us, have won out. So, you know, even if there's no deus ex machina solution, no completely shiny new ideology, that shouldn't make us despair because it's a fight that people who are on the side of thoughtful and, 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 and moderate progress have won in the past, and it's a fight we can win again. But I think the most important thing here is to have a coherent response to the main claims of this ideology. So we've talked about some of the main themes in these ideas. We've talked about the applications to some areas like free speech and cultural appropriation. What I do in the fourth part of the book is to step back and offer what philosophers call a rational reconstruction of these ideas, boiling them down to the main claims and then rebutting each of those claims. So here are the three main claims. They are, first of all, that to understand the world, to understand our interaction right now, to understand a historical event like a political revolution, you really have to have a primary prison, which is that of identity. That the way that Marxist thought that class explains everything, we should recognize, they say, that race, gender, sexual orientation, those identity categories really explain how we deal with each other. One example of this is Robin DiAngelo saying, every time a white person interrupts a black person, they are bringing the entire apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. Which makes me think, by the way, that DiAngelo doesn't have any black friends, because part of friendship is that you sometimes interrupt each other. Uh, we've sometimes interrupted each other on, on this podcast, <laughs> but it's a normal part of how human interaction works, right? The second key claim is that as somebody like Bell would argue, the universal values enshrined in the United States Constitution weren't just hypocritical. It's not just that we failed to live up to them, as is surely true. 
it's that they were really designed to pull the wool over people's eyes. The entire purpose of these ideas was to perpetuate the kind of racial and other discrimination that has marked a lot of our history. That explains why supposedly we haven't been able to make any progress while America is as racist uh, in 2000 or in 2023 as it was in 1950 or in 1850. And so finally, the prescription that they endorse becomes, let's rip this entire edifice up. Let's get rid of the Constitution. Let's get rid of these ideas. Let's make how we treat each other and how the state treats all of us explicitly dependent on the kind of identity groups to which we belong. Now, I think there is a way of taking seriously some of the things that provide the lure to people who end up embracing the identity synthesis, of taking seriously injustices that exist in our society today while strenuously resisting each free of these claims, or free of these claims. Uh, so number one, yes, of course, in certain contexts, we need to be aware of race and gender and sexual orientation in understanding how our society works and describing what is happening in the United States and other democracies today. But we also need to be aware of other kinds of prisms, of social class, of religion, of the actions and motives of individuals, of our ideals, and all kinds of other considerations. In other words, rather than imposing one monomaniacal prism, one monochrome prism on the world, we have to look at each situation and let that situation teach us in what terms to understand it. We have to be pluralists about this. The, the second point is that, uh, yes, of course, in the history of the United States and of other democracies, we often fail to live up to our most noble ideals. But actually, the people who were able to make real progress always insisted that we should do better, that we should live up to those ideals. Frederick Douglass, in his most beautiful yeah. speech, What to the Negro is the 4th of July, pointed out the hypocrisy of his compatriots celebrating the Declaration of Independence while slavery was still going on in the United States. But he didn't say, let's rip this up. He said, by what right are you excluding us from those same principles, from those same rights? He didn't say that free speech is terrible because it allows some people to say terrible things. He said, it is the dread of tyrants because it also allows people arguing for abolition to fight for that. Martin Luther King Jr. recognized that the check written to African Americans from the Bank of Justice was fraudulent, but he didn't say let's uh, rip it up, he said, the Bank of Justice must honor the promises it has made to all Americans. And so instead of pretending that we haven't made progress, we need to recognize the progress we've made, and we need to double down on living up to those universal values and neutral rules rather than ripping them up. Are you hopeful that we will... Do you think that in the long run that universalist approach will win out? Or is this a book in which you're saying this is how I think we would do it? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's, that's always a smart answer to say I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I, I, you know, I think it depends on what we're going to do. And I think that's true in this case. I think that this is going to be, you know, 20 
or 25 years of contestation over these ideas. They now have enough of a foothold in some of the key institutions, and especially the, the educational institutions of the United States, that these ideas are going to continue to have a tremendous influence over a long period of time. In the last year or so, there started to be a little bit more pushback, even at places like Stanford Law School and so on. But 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 even as the most sort of extreme uh, excesses of this ideology have been pushed back, some of its basic assumptions have become even more deeply enshrined in our institutions. And so I really think this is going to be a long debate about these ideas. And that's what makes it all the more important to take these ideas seriously, to actually understand them, and then to muster the best possible arguments against them. It's also important to think about how to argue against them, claiming the moral high ground, trying to persuade rather than to vilify, focusing on the persuadable majority rather than the most extreme loudmouths, not falling into the reactionary trap where you just oppose anything that anyone might somehow call woke, but rather basing what you're fighting for on your own values. So that is why I wrote this book. Um, I'm proud to be arguing for the ideas that you know I've been talking about for the last hour, because I might be wrong about some of them, but I generally think that they're going to build a better society. I think if everybody who listens to this podcast, if everybody who hopefully comes into contact with this book starts to argue against them in a serious, non-trollish way, this is a debate that we can win. And so, uh, you know, my purpose with this book really is to, to, to give opponents of these ideas a much better set of tools to argue for the best in our political tradition. Last question. What happens if we fail? Some people say if we fail, we lose everything that's good about the West. And others say, well, it'll just be unpleasant or we'll all be living a lie. How existential do you believe the stakes to be? Part of the question is, of course, sort of to what extent do we fail? To what level do we fail, yeah. right? So there's not a one or zero answer. But I think the stakes are high. I mean, one, one thing that I do worry about is that in a straight-up battle between left identitarianism and far-right identitarianism, the far right probably wins. So I think part Why? of what happens, um, because you're presenting people with a choice of blaming others or blaming themselves, and while plenty of people like to blame themselves, it's always going to be more tempting to more people to blame the outsider. And that's a distinction you would draw between right and left identitarianism, that the left blames themselves, the right blames others. Well, at least for the majority group, right? right? See, um, so, 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 so it depends on who we're talking about. But by definition, the majority group is in the majority. Got and it. so in a democracy, um, you know, the majority is more likely to say, well, it's the fault of these people who are not part of the majority than to say it's the fault of yourself, right? So that's, that's one fear. And the other fear is that we end up with you know, a society that looks a little bit like Lebanon, where who you can marry and be friends with, how the law applies to you, how you move through the social world is just fundamentally going to depend on the group you're from. And one of the things that that makes difficult is to, if you happen to be a member of two different groups and it's not quite clear to which group you belong, or if you want to define yourself not by your ethnicity, not by the religion into which you're born, 
but by other kinds of moral uh, or personal commitments. One of the things I say in the book is that it's a political trap, but it's also a personal trap. Part of the law is to say, everybody seeks some form of social recognition, some form of social affirmation. Nothing that's true. Nearly everybody wants yeah. something like that. Uh, and of course, to be able to offer all of our citizens that, we mustn't denigrate people. We mustn't be mean-spirited. We mustn't say that some people are inferior to others. But to say that you can find that form of personal recognition by defining yourself primarily by the intersection of groups into which you happen to belong is, I think, an important mistake. Think of your sibling. Most people are going to share a lot of identity groups with their sibling. Perhaps not all of them, but most of them, right? Is your, sis is your sibling the same as you? To be seen yourself as somebody who's valued in society, don't you need something that goes beyond the generic recognition that you and your sibling are going to get by virtue of which group you happen to be born into? To truly be seen in that kind of way, we need to be recognized as, as individuals with our own tastes and preferences, our own predilections, our own values. And so I think at a very minimum, the kind of society which I'm concerned about is going to fail to live up to this promise that it makes to so many young people, to so many of my students, that if only they see themselves in terms of these identities, if only they embrace race, as this very influential organization today says, that's going to give them a good place in the world. It won't. And so even if we avoid the larger political catastrophes, and we might not, I think that that would be a very high Price to pay. I think that's a fantastic way to end it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Yasha Monk. Thank you to you for listening. I'm sorry to the podcast for missing its anniversary in favor of Monday Night Football. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>